Well, good Monday morning. This is Dustin with the California NBA. Welcome to another episode of Connect, the California NBA's weekly podcast featuring one-on-one interviews with movers and shakers in the mortgage industry. We've got a great guest today. I'm excited to talk to her and listen to her perspective on the industry and, and uh, what's going on now and into the future. And we'll get to her in just one second. But uh, first, let's uh, thank our sponsors over at Incelerate. Incelerate, the leading mortgage lead management, CRM, and engagement platform that helps lenders close more loans by increasing efficiency gains across sales, marketing, operations, and management, has just announced the first of its kind mobile app. This groundbreaking mobile app features full lead management, lead distribution, click-to-call, inbound call routing, first call automation, and two-way compliant text messaging, and provides access to critical loan information without having to use a laptop or log into the uh, uh, LO's uh, loan uh, origination system. So it also empowers loan officers by intelligently distributing leads, managing pipelines, prioritizing their day, automating best, practic- best practices, and personalizing the borrower's journey all from their mobile app. So for more information or to catch a demo, visit Incelerate.com, or you can call the number in the description below. So before we get into our discussion, let's uh, toss it over to Susan at the California NBA for this week's weekly video update. Susan? Hi, this is Susan with the California NBA here with your weekly video update. Well, we've got our Western States Craft Conference just around the corner happening virtually September 9th and 10th. And I've got two great reasons for you to register today. First of all, please contact one of our conference sponsors because they can give you a promo code to register for this conference free of charge. That's right, contact any of those sponsors and they can give you uh, that information so you can join us for free. Also, if you're registered by the end of today, you'll be entered to win a $500 Amazon gift card, compliments of Walker Dunlop. And uh, if you're registered at any point during this week, we'll be doing a second drawing at the end of this week another $500 Amazon gift card, compliments of Northmark. So thank you very much to our Platinum sponsors for making those registration incentives possible. Of course, we'll be welcoming uh, Mary Luggan from Heitman, John Chang at Marcus Millichap. We have our uh, luncheon keynote speaker, um, the interviewed uh, Adam Carolla, which very excited to hear his thoughts on this year, as well as our virtual tour of the new SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles. So Lots of great uh, things happening in that conference and we look forward to you joining us for that event. Also wanna share with you a legislative update. For those of you who are following legislation we've been working on this year, you might know that the administration um, had a proposal earlier this year to reorganize the Department of Business Oversight or the California DBO as we, we refer to it. That's the main regulator for the residential lenders in our state. Uh, the idea was to do a, a reorganization, rename the, um, the department, uh, the Department of, of Financial Protection and Innovation, expand its scope and enforcement, uh, enforcement capabilities. Over weeks of negotiation, the California MBA was able to um, secure amendments that would exempt existing licensees from this new enforcement and structure. So if you are a CFL licensed entity or licensed as a CRMLA, you are exempt from the provisions of the um, the new department. Reason being that the focus for the new department will be on unlicensed unlicensed entities that are providing um, financial products in our industry. So very pleased with that outcome. I wanna thank uh, my lobbying team for doing such a great job this year. We've had um, uh, many issues that have been very significant for the industry and the California MBA is very proud to be the voice of the real estate finance industry in California. 
that's it for this week and I'll turn it back to you, Destin. All right, thanks, Susan. Great, uh, great news on a big victory there for the uh, advocacy team at the California NBA. All right, well, let's jump into the conversation now. I'm excited to welcome Brenna Nath. Brenna is the housing, uh, the HW Plus Managing Editor over at Housing Wire, good friend of the association. If you were at the Mortgage Innovators Conference here a couple weeks ago, uh, Brenna did the uh, all of our great Housing Wire Tech 100 interviews with the uh, sponsors at the conference, and uh, I think they're pretty well received and, and great. gave a great chance for uh, Brenna to engage with those uh, great tech companies that are definitely the uh, sort of the leading edge of the industry right now. So welcome, Brenna. Thanks for having me. I would agree. Um, I think I was listening to the past episode and someone else mentioned they never would have considered themselves a mover and shaker, but it's always a pleasure to be on the podcast or just to chat with you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, let's start at the beginning here. Let's uh, tell me about your, let's talk about your background, how you uh, got started in the industry and, and what led you to uh, Housing Wire. It's a fun question. I am um, one of the younger souls in the mortgage industry, and it's one of my favorite questions to ask other people is their history in the space and them going through the financial crisis. But I had the pleasure of joining the industry in February 2012. So I'm coming up on almost seven years. I think I'm just over seven. Um, but I joined Housing Wire for us out of college. At the time, I interviewed with Jacob Gaffney, who was our former editor-in-chief. He had a couple roles before for that, and I know a lot of people in the industry know who he is um, and probably been following Housing Wire since then. But I distinctly remember coming into the office on my first day of the interview and him asking me about the financial crisis. Do I know what it is? Do I have any history about money? Um, and thankfully, I had uh, the pleasure, the, uh, thankfully, my family wasn't super impacted by the financial crisis, so I didn't have any giant feelings towards it. I just remember thinking when I was graduating college, like, am I going to find a job? How's the yeah. job market doing? Which um, nowadays, a lot of what I write about is like, hey, the millennial generation also dealt with that, and now we're going through COVID. Um, but when Jacob was hiring for the position, one of the things that he was looking for was someone who wasn't impacted by the financial crisis. I think it's really easy for people, um, especially journalists, maybe people who don't have as much blood, sweat and tears in the industry to be very negative towards it. And so he didn't want someone coming in and just writing negatively about the space over and over again, but he wanted someone to have a fresh eyes and fresh perspective. And so I kind of tapped into my my family has always been a very frugal, financially wise family, thankfully. And so said, hey, I've always cared about finances. I think this is something I can really um, get into and enjoy. And so since over the last seven years, I think once you get uh, too deep in this industry, there's no going back. And so I've developed a very strong passion for it. But even in those moments, the first times I was working at Housing where I'd tell family members about the job and they'd be like, oh, Fanny and Freddie, I can't believe them. And saw firsthand the anger that a lot of consumers still had. And then of course got very defensive, like, no, this industry is changing, we're, we're working, look at all these innovative products or look at, um, these initiatives that have been put in place. So one thing I think that's great about Housing Wire is we are B2B, um, similar kind of CMBA, you guys fight for the industry. And so being able to see firsthand and have firsthand interviews with people in this industry and see across the nation what people are doing um, has really just um, kind of fueled my passion for this space. And so I did leave briefly two years ago and I went to go work for a company called The Money Source. Um, what was great about that is, uh, as everyone knows, this industry is very uh, uh, in-depth. There's a lot of moving parts and pieces. And so the money source had a correspondent channel. They were a correspondent investor. They also had servicing, subservicing. And at the time, they had retail and wholesale. So talk about really stepping your toes in and knowing. Every channel filled. 
Mm -hmm. Especially correspondent. That's the one I think sometimes takes the most to learn. And so really being able to see how does each part of this industry work? And I still have so much more to learn, but that really helped me get this um, inside view of how the mortgage industry operates and even how all those pieces move together as far as retail. Do you service your own loans? Do you not service your own loans? That has developed a lot of my passion now. So I came back to Housing Wire in December to lead up HB Plus, which is our premium content subscription, um, and was more excited just to bring back all the knowledge that I got from TMS to really dig into just how vast this industry is and even have a little bit of experience in the title industry. And so that's a whole new world. Um, and I think it's just since then just been a privilege to hear everyone's unique stories in the space. Well, and it had to have been a, a huge boost to, you know, that time at uh, TMS just to sort of dig a little deeper and have, you know, I always think that you know, people in my role and also, you know, certainly on the the journal side, you've got to have, you know, your your breadth of knowledge. It's a mile wide and inch deep sometimes. And so to, you know, dig in a little deeper there, now you're, you know, two inches deep, you know, maybe. But I'm yeah. curious if you have a, uh, like a background in, like in college, did you study, you know, the finances at all? I mean, I always, it, it always kind of, you know, when I think about it, it cracks me up. In college, I literally got, I dropped out of macroeconomics after one day because it was too complicated. I changed my major over to a Bachelor of Arts from Bachelor of Science just so I wouldn't have to do any more math or business. And then sure enough, I wind up here. Uh, no, I don't. That is a great question. I've My dad has always been a very budget wise person. So I have that. But in college, I think I took one finance class. I was a Bachelor of Arts as well. Didn't take too many in the science, but um, I do remember something I do think like crossed over a class that I loved a lot was um, ethics. And I mm -hmm. think that in journalism has been really handy, but even in just the mortgage industry and how you define these regulations and rules. And so I've been able to kind of pull some pieces out, but no, I did though, uh, back when I was at Housing Hour, we had to take a lot of, you know, the your normal like regulation tests and rulings. And so from there you get even more deeper knowledge of how finances work and the regulation that goes behind it. So that helps some. It's a steep learning curve, to say the least. Yep. Um, so I'm curious, what are the uh, what would you say are the challenges uh, facing journalists this year, and, and just in general? I mean, it's been, to say the least, a, a crazy year with the pandemic. I mean, you've got just the crush of never-ending breaking news. It seems like, yep. and I know yep. that you know, journalists just in the last you know five ten years, the, the demands on your time for social media interaction has just gone through yep. the roof. So, yep. or is there something else? What's the biggest <laughs> challenge you see this year? No, I think you touched on it perfectly, which uh, something I think, and this goes right to you, Dustin, and really anyone else, I think about also the MBA um, at the national level is I think we're all burning the midnight oil right now. But I think that also speaks to the entire industry. And so the biggest challenge, which I think covers any job position, I think right now to me personally that I would advocate for is just like mental health or work-life balance. I think we're always on. And so, I mean, if you go back to March, 2020 when I think start things started to really take off I had to have a lot of like tough conversations with friends about just like okay like I need to step away I've never been more thankful to live in Colorado and be able to go camping and go to the mountains or just like take the time you need to step outside and get some fresh air because everyone else was saying oh turn off the news you know take a break to, in order to, to to stay okay during the crisis like no we're the news we we have to live breathe and deep and so at the very beginning, I remember being on some tough conversations with lenders about, you know, are they, I mean, there was so much unknown at the time. So are these lenders going to be able to stay afloat? Are they going to be able to keep their employees? Do you have to let people go? And having to report on that and just hear like kind of negative story after negative story um, takes a toll on your mental health. 
but at the same time, I see press releases coming out from the PR half of things, and they're also burning midnight oil. So there's something special about knowing we're all going through the fire together. Uh, no pun in, uh, no, not to make light of the fires going on right now, but there's, I think, just a lot of us that were just kind of going through the trenches. <laughs> and so it was just nice to know that none of us were alone. Yeah, no, I think this is another one of those scenarios. It's almost like coming out of the financial crisis where, you know, so many people you can do, it's almost like a, you know, some sort of a secret code that everyone knows yeah. you you went through it too. I went through too. And yeah. I think we're going through that right now. Another one of those, uh, yeah. one of those moments. Hopefully it, it's, hopefully it, uh, we get through it before too long. I, I think hope your point so. about, you know, mental health. I think that, uh, you know, we can only take so much and at some point things have got to cool down a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. What would you say, you know, working at a, at a trade publication, I'm curious your thoughts on, you know, sort of the ch the challenges, the unique, you know, differences uh, between, you know, working and uh, um, reporting for a trade publication as opposed to just a, a mainstream publication. I love that question because it's also a question I I try to address with peers and friends and family. Um, I can't say I'm an expert on the other industries like medical or education, but one thing that I think is very valuable about niche trade publications, especially like Housing Wire, which is still a very big publication, is that you are hyper-focused on one thing. I remember watching very firsthand as a journalist back, um, just like kind of back in the Obama era of things, when a regulation changed, when you're hyper-focused on something, you get to see truly the unbiased view because you have all the history that went into when was a rule enacted when was it overturned why did the next regulation do it and you there's a lot of i mean as you guys know we're changing so fast no normal publication or you know the wall street journals or the big ones that cover everything can really have that much insight into what's going on they can only broadly cover the financial industry and so i'll always stress i think as consumers, anyone needs to watch, you know, get a wide breadth of information that they're pulling into their database, but check in with those niche publications because they actually have the history and the connections with people like the CNBA or the NBA, the people who are talking to the lobbyists and actually know, okay, what's going on in government or what is uh, going on in Congress right now and having the strong conversations. And I've always valued that about House and Wires. We, we get to see the history and the timeline so we can at least track it better. Um, I think that's a unique benefit. Of course, I'd say the other side of it is sometimes we're smaller operations <laughs> than a lot of people think. Sometimes people think we are this giant media company and we actually are a pretty small but nimble and flexible crew. And the pros of that is that we're able to really connect with our audience. We don't have a lot of red tape. Um, we're able to really just kind of get in there, figure things out and turn articles really fast. So. Um, yeah. well, you guys definitely put out the image that you guys are there, you're a big, strong publication. So it's great to hear that, you know, we, I feel, you know, we kind of do the same sometimes where people assume that we have a big, giant staff, but we really don't. It's, you know, yeah. and I think we definitely enjoy the fact that we're nimble. And if we, you know, you know, hear a good idea from a member, we can kind of turn on a dime and, and start a new program yeah. to your point or, you yeah. know, you know, get push an article or a, a theme yeah. out pretty quick. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, just from, you know, and this is, I think, uh, something that uh, I value about uh, um, publications like Housing Wire as well, is that, um, you know, you have, I think you guys have better contacts than, you know, your typical mainstream publication that just, you know, people in the industry yeah. that actually know what's going on just aren't going to talk to a reporter at the New York Times, yeah. like they'll talk to you. Um, yeah. So I'm curious, from your perspective, talking to your contacts, what's your take on sort of the state of the uh, industry right now? That's a, a big question, but I think uh, definitely an important 
important one right now. So I'll kind of highlight what I think we're watching. It might be a little bit long in depth, um, but when you think about just right now, one, we're changing so fast. And so I think, I think everyone's watching the news piece right now. And I think if this goes live this week, everyone's kind of watching right now the refinance adverse market fee. Um, and because that touched so many parts of the industry, we're also getting a lot of feedback and contacts from different people in the market. One story that sticks out and then I can kind of dive deeper into is KK Halley, who is our editor at large, was talking with uh, an, a loan officer, I think it was. And yesterday, just hours before they reversed the fee, he closed his own refinance mortgage and had to pay the fee. Um, uh, which I'm sure other people talk about personally feeling it. You, it's one thing to feel for your borrowers, but at the end, you know, kind of the silver lining he said was the fact that he did lock his rate at pretty low. And so if he did kind of restart the process, he, his rate would have been higher. And then maybe on the long term, it would have been a loss, but just the idea that just hours before the news came out. Yep. Um, yeah. So going, I, I guess it's, deeper into it then I so said like obviously that news was switched yesterday which was kind of a big deal um KK did pull into that deeper and so I think what we're watching it's we're all we all saw the news yesterday they kind of delayed it here for um I think it's three months to December 1st from September 1st and with that though was just a lot of the questions that come out of that so we reported on the news everyone saw the industry reaction but I think what we're trying to we're getting feedback or pulsing people in on the industry is one what do you do with the people who were already in the pipeline to close? Are you gonna eat the fee? Are they gonna eat the fee? Are you just gonna take the money? Um, they, they were already having to manage all of those loans in their pipeline. So kind of hearing from the industry, what are they doing? Do they just maybe not even close those loans? Maybe they kept more loans on their own books in order to help. So that's something I think we're- Is your, is your sense that people are, that uh, lenders are gonna eat the fee more often than not? That's what we're, I would say right now, I don't have the best answer for that because we're because it happened yesterday. And so we're actively, I think, trying to figure out how everyone's navigating it. And I think, too, one thing is everyone's busy right now trying to figure that out. Um, and so that's just something that I think we're actively also just looking. So if anyone has feedback, we're open to it. I'd like to always remind people that we are an open inbox. I'd like to think that we respond and listen to, which is why we have such strong connections. Um, and the other side of it, so outside of like, how is the industry navigating this, was what does this mean? I mean, talk about the boy who cried wolf, but what does it mean for the GSEs exiting conservatorship? I distinctly remember in 2013, so seven years ago when I started at Housing Wire, that was a very big news topic that we covered a lot. And here we are seven years later, still writing about it. Temporary uh, conservatorship. <laughs> yeah. So that that will always be the news that I, I the day that that happens, I feel like I'll have to pop a champagne bottle just because it's been the boy who okay. cried wolf for so long. Um, but uh, I think the other side of that news was some of the people that we're talking to and in KK's piece that she dove into was that people were kind of saying it was a move right now or a last effort from FHA director Mark Calabria to try and get the GSEs to exit conservatorship. Um, and then so much uncertainty coming with the fact that it's an election year. So right yeah. now there is a rule in place that they could switch. They could be fired at will. So will they exit conservatorship? We'll just be on this road even longer than reporting on it. But with that kind of deadline in mind, 
this was kind of a move to try to get somewhere with that. And so that's the other piece of the puzzle that we're kind of closely watching here. So twofold, like the current impact in the industry, what's going on at the government level with the GSEs, um, this is just a news piece that had a lot of legs to it. Yeah, yeah, I think the, the conservatorship uh, question, it's one of those things that uh, as, in my mind, as, as political campaigns get longer and longer and longer, the time, the window of actual governance gets smaller and smaller. And I mean, to your point, I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, the conservatorship of the thing, once you get to the start of an election year, like January 1, that's it. Nothing's yeah. going to happen that year. I mean, yeah. you know, in a sense, even, you know, great big rate movements aren't going to happen mm -hmm. that year. There's just not going to be a lot of change in that election year. And as the elections yeah. get, you know, more spread out, it's like, well, I don't know yeah. if we're ever going to get to conservatorship, uh, you know, ending yeah. that anytime soon, it seems like. Yeah, and you, I mean, that's right up your guys' alley with um, talking to the government, even local, we always talk about the local government. So that same thing happens where someone's trying to even pass a local law, they get it almost to the end and they don't get to open it up to the floor. And so they start the cycle all over again, the following uh, the following time that they can open courts again or their local Congress. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, at least here in California, you know, the, uh, the subject matter of a bill may never change. The bill numbers seem to change from year to year, but that's about it. The actual text eh, may or may not change. Um, so I'm curious, what, um, let's you know, switch gears a little bit. Um, what do you, do you have any tips for uh, companies on how to deal with media? I know this is something that's, you know, I've tried to, you know, in my position, work with uh, our members for years on and, you know, encourage them to, you know, on how to engage and uh, when to engage and what, you know, do's and don'ts kind of thing. But from your perspective, I, I'm curious to hear if you, you know, we're talking to a, 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 a company in the industry, how should they deal with reporters and media in general? I'll, I'll start off by saying I don't want to see for all journalists, but I'd like to think I have some insight here that I would love um, to kind of share. It's a good question. Um, and first off, I think it goes without saying that um, even though I can't speak for all journalists, but we're all not the same. And what I mean by that is that I think I remember I have memories back when we were in the office, so pre-COVID days, pre-work from home, and we'd all, we all, you don't know how someone's office works or their own journalist room, but we used to all sit in a little circle, well circle, we were in like a square, our desk all faced each other, and so someone would call each person in a circle, and then we all would get the same email at a time, which it's kind of comical because you've heard this on the same thing about hiring side where someone's trying to poach an LO and they've emailed the same LO in the entire retail office and the, the LOs joke, they're like, oh, did you get the email? I got the email. And they all got the same non-specific poaching email. And that same thing applies to journalism. So I think a lot of lenders can relate to that if they've all received the same pitch from someone. And journalists are no different. If we all get the same email or same copy paste from everything, um, we know, and it's a little less likely to open it. I'm personally a very relational driven person. I mean, Dustin, I've had the pleasure of working with you for um, over the years at Housing Wire. And um, I think taking the time to know the balance between building a relationship with the journalist, at least for like niche publications, when we're so closely involved in the industry, we're also at the same conferences that you guys are at, getting to know them and like, what what are they actually writing about? What pieces do they need to cover for the day? And what insight knowledge do you guys have on the industry and being able to share that with them, but also not, you know, bombarding them all the time with phone calls, text messages and emails. I think everyone's phone numbers these days are blurred between cell phones and <laughs> normal phones. Um, so I'm always open to a quick text, you know, noting, hey, this is going on, um, but also understanding that we, like I said, are a small newsroom. And so I'd say the benefit is just trying to be personal, be really clear, 
Um, uh, and then lastly, maybe just a lot of people have amazing news and stories to share. Um, if you read the website or if you read anything that's going on, it's not hard to see the trending topics. And oftentimes the companies who are, everyone has their products or their services they want to put out. And sometimes those are informative, but also that means you know what's going on in the servicing industry, say, or what's going on in the correspondent industry that's unique. Or maybe you have a person, you have a lot of great internal staff, a lot of great sources that you could share inside that can give tips on what conversations they're having with the government or even just helping understand some unique thing that maybe a journalist doesn't get yet. Um, those would all be kind of key points I would make. And then, um, yeah, I think those are the main tips I would share. All right. So then what about some, uh, you know, maybe some common mis uh, misperceptions or, or some myths about dealing with reporters? I know that uh, I've, you know, talked to our members over the years about this and, you know, some of them are, you know, maybe have had a bad, uh, a bad relationship or, you know, something's yeah. gone wrong working with a reporter. And then they immediately yeah. think all reporters in the entire world are all, you know, the, you know, a liberal New York Times reporter who's out to get them. I mean, that's yeah. honestly what yeah. I've heard from, you know, uh, more than one uh, member over the years. And I try to, you know, explain them. There's, you know, again, like you mentioned, I mean, there's not every reporter is, is built the same. Not every publication is built the same. And, you know, you can't just have one bad experience and then kind of, you know, throw everything out from there and, and be distrustful of the media, you know, going forward. And you can't just, you know, you know, especially for people that are really engaged politically, they kind of see, you know, the the political news coverage as well. Those those are the same reporters who then are going to write about my company and, and me on the, you know, on the mortgage side. I can't I don't want to talk to them. So maybe what's, you know, as some, you know, bust some myths for us here on, uh, you know, reporters. What's great about, I think, this conversation that I hope listeners understand, too, is, Dustin, you're the PR person and I'm the journalist. So it's really us two communicating. So I even hope, I mean, anyone listening, knowing that, like, it's great relationships with PR people is such a key, per, key part of it. And so to me, that ties right into the common perception, which you just hit the nail on the head, which is that we're going to twist your words or we're just out to get you. Um, we do have a responsibility as journalists to tell the truth. And unfortunately, as a lot of people know, there are bad players in the industry. Um, I'd hope like to think everyone cares enough about this industry that they they want the good people to shine and there are bad players. Um, and that's part of journalism. And someone, you know, needs to keep that accountability or, you know, keep the truth out there for the public. But the other half of it is that we are we are journalists, and I think having that strong relationship with a public relations um, person knows that we're not out to interview you, take your your words, twist it for our own benefits, and then print a, a news article that's completely different than what you guys were expecting. I mean, even in the journalism room, like you even think like, so I'm in charge of HW Plus, which my content is premium; it goes beyond a paywall. But even as journalists, we've had discussions about making sure that we're staying true to our sources and saying, hey, just so you know, being upfront, like this is going behind a paywall. Um, this is important. Trying to keep that trust between us and our source is something we value. Um, we also just value the people who give us the information in general. And so we don't want to, to break that by just twisting your words and putting, you know, something else. And often there are times where I might be on a conversation, you say something that's very informative for another piece I'm working on or another piece that another journalist is working on. I'll say, hey, like, can I, you know, so-and-so is working on the article. Do you mind if I pass along your contact information? Or if later I have that quote, I'll email the peer. Hey, is it okay if I use this quote in this article? That's not what we originally talked about, but it's a great point on where right now the 
um, lending industry is going or the problems they're facing, can I pass it along? And so I think it's a two-way street. It's transparent on both sides, but um, at least for, for a good amount, like if, if you build that trust with time, and I think a lot of our newsroom, a decent amount of us have, KK's been in the industry for a while, I've been at Housing Wire for eight years. Um, we've gotten really close to our contacts. Um, and so that relationship is a huge part. I yeah. say that's a common mis misconception or myth, the biggest one too. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. It's, you know, it kind of drives me nuts that, you know, you talk to, especially because you say, you know, um, and I don't think this is necessarily the same thing at, at uh, especially a mainstream publication where I think you get journalists that kind of bounce back and forth between beats and between publications. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, there's a lot of longevity at housing where you guys have no interest in, you know, burning sources or, you know, or uh, companies and, and uh, you know, as you said, you know, kind of treating them poorly and, you know, ruining that relationship because, I mean, then you've got then you've got no news. <laughs> yeah, that's a great way to put it. We have a lot of uh, we've built a lot of time, longevity, blood, some tears into these relationships, so we're not looking to to jeopardize them. Yeah, no, I agree. So I would I would definitely you know encourage folks out there you know be you know careful to say what you want to say and be clear with uh, with when you speak with the reporters, but don't be afraid. You, mm -hmm. you can't. I, I would certainly not base uh, your decision making on fear, and I think uh, you know. Too often I see that with members over the years. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, moving on here, question for you. As someone who gets, as you mentioned earlier, you know, so you get your uh, your inbox is constantly filled with uh, uh, requests for uh, uh, either publication or they've got a, a press release or you know announcement coming out for a new product or someone getting hired somewhere else, a promotion, something like that. I mean, your inbox is full all the time. How, from a uh, lender's point of view or or a vendor service vendor in the industry? How can I actually break through the sort of the noise that goes on constantly and actually get my voice heard, get my story out there? Yeah, that is a question that's always been unique to me or fascinated me. Uh, there's been a lot of times where I, so I'm very active on LinkedIn. I post a lot. I'm on there a lot. A lot of um, people at Housing Wire are. I say that's the, the number one platform we're on, but there's also Facebook, Twitter that we actively check. But one thing that's fascinated me is there have been times where I try to look for a source or I try to look for a piece of the information. And so I will, you know, like subconsciously you're scrolling social media. You see the people who post a lot. You see the people who are only posting self-serving things. You see the people who post thought leadership. And I'd say we're always actively watching that. I'm always looking to see who's posting informative blogs or has a different thought on what's going on. And, and I'm also posting stuff about conferences and things like that, but also just your general thought piece. And we personally, I watch stuff like that and then later think, oh, I need a source for this. This person's kind of doing their thing on LinkedIn. They're posting blogs or posting commentary. And I see that or they added me. They're engaging with me on these platforms. Um, let me, you know, message them. I'd say email is just one way to get a hold of a journalist, but also meeting them where they're at. So if you're following them on Twitter and respond to their tweets, sometimes that's the, the least like, I mean, we're just as active. I joke that if you send me a message on LinkedIn, it's no different than texting me. It all goes to my phone. I'm going to check the same place. And the same goes for email. It's just email is the most crowded. And so the, the best advice I'd have for a company is yes, you know, send me the email with your unique idea. Um, everyone has a voice. Everyone has different people in the company that have shine and unique facts, but also kind of don't be afraid to just look at housing more. Post on LinkedIn, post on Twitter. We're also actively watching those places and seeing what you're doing. We often work with the MBA, the people who are on the committees. Um, like recently I needed to do an article on diversity and inclusion. So even though I use the MBA's um, lead person 
person for their diversity and inclusion council, you know, she's her own lender and the president of that. So I was able to, you know, spotlight another company. So the people who are actually involved in the industry, the people who are actively posting because they care and have a passion, we see that. Um, and they're also the people who have great things to share. Yeah. Well, I always tell companies too that one of the biggest things that, uh, you know, I always tell them as far as working with reporters, get back to them. If a reporter yeah. reaches out to you, make sure yep. you respond. Yep. That may be the only time you get that response. And if you don't, yep. like you said, if you don't work on that relationship on your end, don't expect the reporter to call you next time there's a story in your in your sector. That's uh, a good piece. Just quick communication. I always try to respond fast and say, I received your email. I'll let you know stuff like that, um, communication and everything in life. You can take it from your personal life to professional life. Communication is important. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, we're running out of time here. So last question for you. And uh, I think this one is particularly relevant with uh, you know everything that's gone on this year and especially looking back to past crises. You know, give us some tips from your perspective on how to maybe survive scandal, how to survive a media crisis, whether or not, and I you know, won't get into whether or not it was a legitimate crisis or not legitimate crisis. Once it's sort of out there, it's something to deal with. And so what's your, what's your thoughts on how to survive a crisis and maybe, you know, some do's and don'ts. I'd like to think I have a, a unique perspective on this being on the journalism side, but also being on the PR side. <laughs> I think being on the PR side really um, lets you know, like, oh, I'm the person handling this. So we, we need to have some insight. And so I also think you, Dustin, have some great insight here. But I would say uh, the first thing, the obvious thing, obviously, is be proactive. That's the most important thing. Uh, but I also am a big believer in actual tangible tips. <laughs> so something that I thought was really valuable when I was on the PR side, um, so journalist side is be proactive, be transparent, be communicative with journalists. So as far as when it comes to the news, because you know, just as much as there is, we want to cover good news. Like I said, there are there are some negative news, and so if you have that relationship with journalists, it benefits you in both ways. Um, and then outside of that, moving to the PR side, I would say, um, which I'm sure you've heard too, is you know build your crisis plan. I think it's more important than ever to have a plan in place. And what I mean by plan, it's like you need to list who are the key people in your organization, that who are the top five people that if emergency happens right now, this is who we need to contact. What are their cell phones numbers? Do we have a specific email just for, you know, you have crisis at companyname.com. Um, and then from there, what is each person's role and responsibility? That way in the moment, you're not saying, okay, you, you take care of our social media channel. You take care of telling all our employees, like make sure you define each person's role in the crisis. Um, and then the very applicable thing you can do is run through scenarios, pick out your top five crisis things that might happen. Maybe you have a consumer that goes rogue. Maybe it's, you know, something bad happens to one of your office buildings, then, then you're on the news all of a sudden. Um, try to pick the top three, run through those scenarios, do a, a dry run with your top five and uh, executives. Usually it's usually executive, maybe your social media person, and then a PR person through the plans. And then each month or each quarter, whatever you have time for, um, create a new, worst case scenario and run through it. I think the last thing you want to do is have this on the back burner. I know all these executives have really busy schedules, but in order to get in front of that crisis, you need to be having these test runs and dry runs in order to navigate it well. And they're, unfortunately, they're, they're going to happen. Um, you never want it to be you, but how much better would you feel if you had test runs in play? Yeah, no, I think that I think that's to, to your point about it being applicable. I think that's absolutely something that everyone should do. And and you know, there's a reason why you know, like the military does war games. I mean, 
yeah. it pays yeah. off. Or, you know, when you actually have a crisis, to your point, it's almost like when you have a, uh, as a family, you always want to have a plan for if there's a fire or something, yeah. everyone knows where to go. So you're not just kind of all screaming and yelling when it happens in the moment. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that, that's really great advice. So, hey, yeah. Brenna, I meant to, I meant to uh, uh, give you an opportunity at the beginning, but tell us a little bit about uh, HW Plus, uh, for those yeah. who don't, everyone knows about Housing Wire, but yeah. they may not know about HW Plus. So HW Plus was created at the beginning of the year. I think everyone's familiar with kind of premium content subscriptions, but what I think is special and unique about HW Plus is we still have all our content online that everyone has expected and come to know as free, um, delivered daily to you on the top news cycle. But HB Plus digs deeper into your daily news cycle on the why that's going on. So it's where we have a lot more um, sources and information and reporting and data that goes into it. So a lot more data driven. And these pieces are significantly longer, but it's not just these pieces that you're getting. HW Plus is also very much a community thing. So we have an mm -hmm. HW Slack channel, which we consider like a direct light into the newsroom. So if you've ever actually really want to get in contact with them outside of LinkedIn, there's also, you can just Slack us. And that's a great way to communicate us and what's going on, um, see the latest updates, be the first one to see the articles that go live. That's also what a lot of our conferences go through now. So if you're an HB Plus member, you get access to all of our conferences um, um, and pass the day. So we post them as on-demand events later. Um, along with, um, we have a housing stack, which showcases all the technology products in the industry right now. So uh, HW Plus, more than just like content, it's more of like this community with a lot of different moving parts to it um, that allows everyone to kind of engage with, whether you want to engage with us, get the latest news, attend our conferences. It, it's all encompassing like community. Yeah, well, that's really cool. All right, well, then uh, for those who aren't uh, aren't, already, aren't already subscribers at uh, HW Plus, make sure and go to Housing Wire and check them out. Um, Brenna, thanks again for uh, joining us today on Connect. It was really fun talking to you. Have a, uh, a great rest of your day. And for those of you who, if you enjoyed this conversation, make sure you can subscribe to us here on our YouTube channel. You can also check us out on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. We're here every Monday morning. We'll see you next Monday on Connect. Mm -hmm.